Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen. In April of 2003, when I was wrapping up my sophomore year of college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, when my hair was down past my shoulders, whoo, whoo. My friends and I decided to plan what would become for us an annual weekend trip down to Chicago, Illinois. These trips involved us driving down to my friend's parents' home in St. Joseph on a Thursday and then catching a train from Michigan City, Indiana into downtown Chicago the next morning, which we did every year, even the year after I graduated. We went back and did it together. Now, for most of us, our first trip in 2003 was our first trip to downtown Chicago. And for me, it was pretty much my first trip to any city of renown, with one exception being my sixth grade class trip to Toronto with uh, my fellow students in Doyle Ryder. But being adventurous on this trip to Chicago, we took a video camera with us, a camcorder as we called it back then, And after taking an hour this past week to review the really, really, really bad footage that we took, uh, which somehow I still have, the nearly 40-year-old me can conclude two things. One, 20-year-old me was a total dork. (laughs) I know, hard to believe. And two, our whole travel group of about seven 20-somethings was all really, really immature. Case in point, part of our filming involved filming an extended sitcom episode we wrote on the fly about a character named Mark the Pigeon Hunter whose job was to capture pigeons in the downtown streets of Chicago, which we attempted to film over and over and over again. And in reviewing the footage now, I can clearly see the strange and annoyed looks the locals were giving this group of college dummies. Anyway, the point of the story is to tell you that one of the things I remember about this trip as a 20-year-old was what it looked like to come up the escalator for the first time at the Randolph and Wabash train station and seeing a metropolis take shape all around me. The first thing I noticed was just how many people there were. Then I noticed how many buildings there were. As we walked the blocks north to the Magnificent Mile, I began to sense just how broad the city was, but I also began to sense how tall the city was. The skyscrapers were 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 stories high. Our group 
uh, filed under the college dummies entry, snuck into a private elevator in one 60-story residential building, and somehow we got up to the 55th floor where we uh, got found out, but also we saw an open window, and we got to see out onto the streets of Chicago, amazed that there were still even more buildings towering up beyond us. The city felt large. It felt permanent. It felt durable. This was a place that wasn't going anywhere. The steel and the glass and the concrete sprang up like foundation stones that seemingly would never vanish or crumble. There was a life coursing through the city. The traffic on the streets and the pedestrians walking across crosswalks were its arteries and blood vessels. It was magnificent. In 2003, we were awestruck and captivated by what we saw. And in the 20 years between then and now, I've had numerous opportunities to visit Chicago again, to visit my wife Katie, whose student taught there when she was in college, to see relatives who now live there. I've been to see concerts there. And just this past summer, Katie and I had the chance to take our oldest son on a special pre-middle school trip to see Chicago's Major League Soccer team play at Soldier Field. A city like Chicago is still amazing to me. The size and the scope feel impressive and difficult to get your hands around. In the gospel reading today, before Jesus gets to his old-time gospel preaching about the coming uh, apocalypse and the end of things and what all that's going to be like for people, there's this short exchange. Nothing more than a bit of dialogue right at the beginning of today's reading. It's so brief, and it lacks the urgent panic of all that follows it. You'd be forgiven if you missed it today. But what is exchanged there is so pivotal to understanding everything else about today's reading. Today's gospel reading is Luke 21, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 19. If you have it open in front of you in your order of worship or your Bibles, great. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Okay, church, let's have some fun with history. Okay, first, Jesus was likely put to death in the year 27 in the Common Era. He was also raised from the dead in the year 27 of the Common Era. He ascended into heaven in the year 27 of the Common Era. The uh, Feast of Pentecost and the Descent of the Spirit took place in the year 27 of the Common Era. So far, so good. The Apostle Paul is called to ministry a few years after Jesus' ascension and spends about 20 years or so starting communities of Jesus' followers across the Roman Empire before he dies around 60 in the Common Era. The Gospel of Luke, from which today's story is taken, first circulates in a complete written form sometime about 80 in the Common Era. So between the years 27 of the Common Era and 80 in the Common Era, all of the stories about Jesus that would come to be in the Gospel of Luke, including today's story, were being told over and over and over again by apostles and those who came after them. But between 
the, when the Apostle Paul dies in 60, and when the Gospel of Luke becomes circulated in 80, there is a major world event that takes place. An enormous, epic, defining, historical moment that shakes everything in the lands around Judea to its core. It's called Hamared Hagadol, the Great Revolt. It's also called the Jewish War, a military conflict that lasted for about seven years between Roman armies and Judean fighters. Here's how it went down. In the year 66 of the Common Era, uh, uh, fed up with rising taxation, uh, uh, intensely zealous groups of Jewish fighters began attacking Roman citizens openly. The Roman governor at the time, this guy, Gessius Florus, responds by conducting mass arrests of key Jewish leaders and sends in his troops to the temple to plunder its precious goods as repayment for the attacks. But this act becomes the tinder to the match, as it were, and suddenly acts of rebellion against Rome pop, are popping up all over the place, and eventually they lead Jewish forces to attack and capture a very prominent Roman garrison. In response, because war always is a matter of meeting force with a greater force, the Romans send in the Syrian legion led by this guy, Cestius Gallus, who retakes much that was lost, but suffers an embarrassing defeat at Beth Haran, losing nearly half his army. Meanwhile, the Jewish opposition in Jerusalem puts together a provisional government now that they have kicked the Romans out. Rome, however, isn't happy about any of this, and so Emperor Nero sends in this guy, General Vespasian, who takes not one, not two, not three, but four Roman legions and comes down to crush the rebellion. And so about a year after the rebellion begins, he invades the Galilee, the lands where Jesus grew up, and claims it back for Rome. Two years after that, in 69, Vespasian makes it all the way down south to Jerusalem and sets up a siege, but then is summoned back home because it's time for him to become the emperor. So it falls to his lieutenant, this guy, Titus, to supervise the siege of Jerusalem. And for seven months, Titus lets no one in and no one out. And after some infighting within the city, the Romans finally breach the wall. And in the summer of 70 CE, on August 30th, a day called Tisha B'Av in the Jewish calendar, a day known as the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, Titus sets fire to the whole lower city, and he tears down the Jerusalem temple completely, carting off everything inside and leaving nothing standing, not one stone on top of another except for one wall from the western foundation. Titus returns to Rome, and a victory arch is commissioned, which still stands in Rome today, depicting Titus's decimation of Jerusalem. You can see in this one, they're carting off the menorah from the temple. Ten years later, the goods stolen from the temple would be used by Rome to build the Colosseum, a facility in which captured Christians would fight to the death in brutal gladiator contests while Roman citizens and upper rich folks cheered them on. And with all of this done, Rome essentially folds up its arms and says to the world, do you see what happens when you rise up against the ultimate power in the world? And the Jewish people, including those who confessed Jesus as Messiah, were scattered to the winds. They entered into a temple-less diaspora, a religious placelessness. 
The Jewish war was the immediate reality behind Luke's gospel, the historical events which every single one of Jesus' readers would have known about and may even have experienced firsthand. These events provide the urgency behind Luke's telling of the stories of Jesus. And I tell you all of this not just for fun, though history is fun. Someone say amen. Okay, thanks, Paul. (laughs) I got Paul on my side. But I tell you this because the sacking of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem would have been an utterly unbelievable prediction to make 50 years prior to the Jewish war. The temple and the city looked secure. They looked stable. They were permanent geopolitical and religious institutions that were ordained by God. No one would have thought they could have been destroyed as they were. Yet here in today's reading, a reading that puts Jesus 50 years before the horrors of the Jewish war, 50 years before the temple would be destroyed, Jesus is predicting the precise reality that the first readers of Luke's gospel were experiencing. In today's reading, beginning in verse 5, we meet some unnamed members of Jesus' disciples who are standing in Jerusalem and who are really, 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 really excited about the beauty and the majesty of what they're seeing at the temple structure. And church, I don't blame them for their enthusiasm one bit. Like college students seeing a big city for the first time, the disciples are in awe at seeing the completed temple in its courts, which had only been completed a few decades previous. They saw the massive stones cut and laid by Herod's engineers with such precision that you could not fit a playing card between them. They saw the gilded tops of the columns framing the facade of the inner temple structure which caught the sunrise and made it look ablaze with glory. They saw the polished bronze altars and wash basins. They saw the enormous courtyard that sprawled out. They counted every one of the 162 columns lining the court of the Gentiles. They saw the gleaming three-story doors of bronze behind which the holiest sanctuary was kept secure. Everything in this area bristled with grandeur and with permanency, with stability and security. But interrupting their awestruck reverie, Jesus says in verse 6, Look, as for these things that you will see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And his disciples want to know, when is this going to happen? Like, that sounds pretty, pretty urgent, Jesus. When is that taking place, these stones? Are you sure? Like, have you seen these stones? They look pretty stable, pretty secure. How are we going to know when that's going to happen? Do you have a tip for us? Something to to look out for so that we know when to get out of town. To this, Jesus simply says, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and will say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. And Jesus goes on to explain to the disciples all the ways in which the times ahead look pretty grim and challenging for his disciples. He anticipates natural disasters, major conflicts with the Roman government, personal conflict within their families, even execution for some of them. And he concludes by saying, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. 
It's not an especially cheery read today, church. No heartwarming miracles, no thoughtful acts of repentance, no charming parables, just a raw, undiluted outlook of Jesus that his disciples are not going to have an easy, breezy, Pollyanna-esque trip through the rest of their lifetimes. Anything but. Intrepid readers among us today may find it interesting to keep reading past today's gospel lesson just to see that Jesus' warnings to his disciples about the immediate future for them get even more grim and disheartening. So what are we, though, the church of 2022, what are we going to do with these words of Jesus today? How do we make sense of them for our place and time? And what might these sayings illustrate for us about what true discipleship looks like in our world? The bottom line, as I see it for us today, is this. Religion fails when it allows external events or historical realities to lead us away from following Jesus and seeking his kingdom in our daily lives. Religion fails when it allows external events or historical realities to lead us away from following Jesus and seeking his kingdom in our daily lives. I think it's good to remember that for the people who first read these verses in Luke's gospel in their house churches, Jerusalem and its temple had already been destroyed. Those realities were historical events for them, immediate historical events for them. The bad news Jesus is anticipating in the reading had already happened when they read it. The question for them was not, when will this take place, but rather, what do we do now that it has already happened? With the temple in shambles, the lower city of Jerusalem, a burned-out husk, the question becomes, what does faithfulness to God's covenant look like now? How does one hope in God when every aspect of our cultural and religious identity has been ransacked and laid to waste? The answer that Jesus gives here is, you need a bigger view of God. You need a different reality in which to place your hope. Jesus is warning to his disciples to not be enamored with the bricks and the mortar of the temple construction was not a takedown of the temple as something bad, but it was a pointed attack against those who saw in the temple building permanency and durability and therefore put their hope, made their hope contingent upon the temple's survival. No first century Jewish person would have said that God actually resides in the temple fully. That would have been foolish. Psalm 50 says that heaven and earth are God's footstool. Isaiah 6 says that the prophet Isaiah saw God in a vision and just the hem of God's robe filled up the temple completely. Nobody thought that God physically squeezed all of his infinity into the confines of the building on top of Mount Zion. But if you asked a first century Jew where God was to be found, they would have pointed directly to the holiest room at the heart of the Jerusalem temple and said there. Because in some way God was present to his people in the temple courts. But with the temple destroyed, can God still be present to his people? Jesus introduces to his disciples the possibility that the temple is not a permanent structure and that someday even it will no longer be a present reality in the life of the people of God. What will they do then? Jesus warns them that when things look bleak, people will come 
And they will use religious language to try to lure the disciples away with promises of power and financial stability and political influence and maybe even plans to rebuild the temple and make it better. Jesus says, beware that you are not led astray. Jesus says, do not go after them. But led astray from what? Led astray from our pursuit of the kingdom of God as Jesus revealed it, I think. Do not be led astray from our commitment to embodying the love God has for this world by providing for the needy and the sick and the desperate. Do not be led astray from our work to feed the hungry and bind up the brokenhearted and visit those in prison. When religious institutions fail and things seem bleak, don't be led astray by popular politicians who coat their speeches in religious language and tell you that God sent me or the time is now. Jesus says, don't go after them. Jesus says, your endurance will rescue you. Which is another way to say, stay faithful to the good news of the gospel. A gospel that never tries to seize power. A gospel that never takes up arms in defense of its claims. A gospel whose message and work is about offering compassion to the brokenhearted, mercy to the sinful, justice to the oppressed, love to the outcast, and hope to the despairing. Religious fa religion fails when it allows external events or historical circumstances to lead us away from following Jesus in our daily lives. Come earthquakes. Come wars and uprisings. Come the shattering of religious norms and values. Come whatever else may come. Jesus speaks to his disciples. Jesus speaks to us and says, stay faithful to the work of Christ that we are doing. When the times seem grim, don't put your hope in the power or prestige of buildings or institutions or influence. When you're frightened or uncertain, don't place your hope in people or princes or presidents. When everything is falling apart, church, don't look up at the shaking mountains and wonder where will our hope come from, but instead stay faithful to the work of the gospel. Keep coming to worship. Keep studying the scriptures. Keep giving away your money. Keep praying for things to change. Keep serving the poor. Keep forgiving your neighbors. Keep supporting the weak. Keep feeding the hungry. Keep visiting the lonely. Keep blessing your enemies no matter what. And in all things, fix your hope not on human institutions and structures, but on Jesus Christ, who is the author and pioneer of our faith, who goes before us and behind us. By your endurance, Jesus says, you will gain your souls. So church, might we endure in the Jesus way. Come hell, come high water, come sickness or suffering, come joy or sorrow, come abundance or scarcity, come weeping or laughing. Whatever the future may hold, church, we know who holds the future, and him alone do we place our hope. I speak to you in his name, the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. 
You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.